Welcome to another episode of Civic Cypher. I'm your host, Ramses Ja. I go by the name Q Ward, except sometimes when Ramses and my mom get emotional, they call my full name <laughs> and overpronounce the O that comes after the T. So it's <laughs> Quentin, not Quentin, which a lot of people kind of default to. But, but we can talk about that later. Yes, indeed. Uh, back up in you one more time make this happen uh stick around because we got a lot to talk about today of course uh, a lot of things happening that are relevant to all of us especially us black folks um definitely going to talk about a few stories that we're following up with uh one of them is the uh black teenager who was in a hotel um and this was a couple years ago there was a woman who was saying that he stole her cell phone and uh, she kind of assaulted the teenager. So we got to follow up for that story. Um, we're also going to follow up with a story from Buffalo, Buffalo, New York, where an elderly man was pushed to the ground by the police. We're going to find out what's latest with that. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, what it means to be black and seek housing in this country a little later on in the show. So you definitely want to stick around for that one as well. Um, I, I know, and I do want to say this right now, uh, Patrick Leoya, um, there's a story there. It was, it was killed by the police, shot in the back of the head. We are going to wait a little bit before we cover that story, but we acknowledge that that's something that we need to, to talk about. So um, just bear with us. We're, we're not going to do that this week. We are going to follow up with that one uh, very soon. Um, but yeah, a lot to stick around for this show. We just need to kind of pace ourselves with certain things. And so this is what we're going to do. Now, we like to start things off around here on a positive note with a feature we call Ebony Excellence. Uh, and if you're ready for that cue, let's jump into it. Shall we? We shall. So today we're going to talk about a man named Christian Smalls. This comes from ABC News. Um, and I'll read, Christian Smalls was fired from his Amazon warehouse job in 2020 after leading a protest over fears working conditions could lead to a coronavirus outbreak at the Staten Island, New York facility. Now Smalls has a new job, president of the Amazon Labor Union. Smalls's Amazon story begins in 2018 when he says he helped open the New York warehouse while employed as a supervisor for the online retailer. That's when he founded the ALU, bringing together a scrappy group of former and current warehouse workers it was that Staten Island group that made history on April 1st after going head to head with Amazon in a union vote and winning. This marked the first successful U.S. organizing effort in the retail giant's history. Now, for those that don't know, Amazon is famously anti-union. And if you don't know, unions for the most part exist to protect the workers. Um, it's basically a union of the workers and they use their collective bargaining power to um, convince the company to provide better working conditions or, you know, higher pay or, you know, things like this. You know, we're, we're, we're greater than the sum of our parts. And that's sort of the mentality behind a union. Well, uh, this man, Christian Smalls, is a black man. I've seen his interviews. He wears a bandana sometimes. He looks not too dissimilar from me and from Q. And he has taken on this huge retail giant and lobbied on behalf of the workers and won so far. And if that's not Ebony Excellence, I don't know what is. And so we will take this moment to shout out the man named Christian Smalls for thriving 
out there in the corporate world. That's next level corporate bravery. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Right? If it doesn't go in your favor, it's like, yeah, like you put exactly. all your chips for that one. No, he's he's making it happen. So shout out to him. Now, we got some stories to follow up with. Um, as I mentioned, uh, there once was a teenager. We covered this story on the show. Teenager who was accused by a white woman in a hotel lobby of stealing a cell phone, right? And this was filmed, and so we all saw it. We saw the, the Karen-esque breakdown in the hotel lobby. Um, we discussed this sense of entitlement, this sense of, uh, this perceived sense of authority over black and brown bodies and, and black and brown agency um, that often comes from a Karen in the midst of her breakdown um, and other uh, non-melanated individuals as well. But, you know, for that episode, we were talking about this and sort of what it feels like to be on the other end of that, because that's a tough thing to kind of navigate. You know, all the, the women in the movies are blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, everyone's coming to rescue or find the bad guy, you know? So, so we're, we're taught that this is the, this is, this is the type of person that society loves the most. And it is definitely not us. So we have to kind of know where we stand in those type of situations. And therefore, they can be very intimidating to be a black person being accused. Doesn't matter if you did it or not, but being accused of violating to one degree or another a white woman. Right. We love white women. We love all women here. We're not trying to pick on anyone, but it is something that we have to be aware of. Uh, on another episode, Q and I, you remember this, we talked about what it feels like to walk down the street at night in my own neighborhood. And there might be a white woman out taking a walk at the same time. And I'll cross the street just to give her the whole side of the street so she doesn't feel threatened. Because if she feels threatened, there's a very real chance that I could be in danger just because she feels a certain type of way. So I'm saying this to establish um, exactly how we, many of us, I should say, not, not all of us, but exactly how many of us have come to um, deal with Karens, you know, or, or would-be Karens, right? So let me bring you up to speed with this story. This comes from CNN. Uh, the California woman who falsely accused a Black teenager of stealing her cell phone and then attacking him in a New York City hotel pleaded guilty to unlawful imprisonment in the second degree as a hate crime, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office announced um, in December 2020, Maya Ponsetto was seen on video attacking a 14-year-old, Keon Harold Jr., who was with his father, a musician, in the Arlo Hotel. Ponsetto said she thought he had her phone, but investigators later determined he did not. Oh, that was so satisfying. I remember that. Um, video of the incident quickly went viral, with many accusing Ponsetto of racially profiling the teen an accusation that she has denied. The incident also occurred as continued calls for racial justice and police reform were at the highest they'd been in years due to the deaths of black people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor at the hands of law enforcement officials. Now, here's the part that I think you need to hear about, Q. The plea deal requires Ponsetto, who's 23 years old, to follow the probation terms for a separate case in California, attend counseling, and avoid further criminal incidents. 
If she doesn't comply, Ponsetto could go to prison for up to four years, prosecutors said. But if she successfully follows those terms, she can replead the felony charge to a misdemeanor charge of aggravated harassment in the second degree. Now, around here, we call that a slap on the wrist, right? And around here, we like to reframe the conversation or the scenario around, okay, what if the perpetrator was black and the victim was white? Now, with that said, Q, I'd love for you to jump in and tell us what we already know you're going to say. <laughs> so having done no research at all, I cannot say straight faced and with my chest puffed out that if she were, say, Ramses, <clears throat> that the plea deal would not have, would not only have not been offered, definitely wouldn't have included a portion of the plea where if you comply with the probation terms from another case, right. you can re-plead this one down to it. Mm. Okay, I'll stop because see how confusing that got mm. real fast. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Our plea deals are often uh, almost legal entrapment, mm -hmm. right? I need you to agree that you did this crime that you're saying you didn't do. And we'll make sure you don't go to prison for as long. Cool? Cool. Not, say you did this, and then we're going to give you the charges from this other thing that you also did. And if everything is cool in a little bit of time, we'll just act like you ain't do either one of them. How you feel about that, Rams? Now, watch this. That kind of reminds me a bit of the sentence handed down to Kim Potter. For those that don't know or don't remember, Kim Potter is the officer, former officer, I should say, who uh, was convicted, to be fair, for killing Dante Wright. Um, we saw the video. She was the officer that pulled out her gun, yelled, taser, 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 and then ended Dante Wright's life. Um, and, you know, Q makes an excellent point. You know, if you listening to us today or me talking into this microphone or anyone we know um, accidentally takes someone's life, there is a degree of accountability that comes into question immediately. Um, but oftentimes as police officers, you know, they're the leniency is it's 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 asinine and it's so unfair and it's so hurtful so um, we mentioned last week that i went through and i um, tried to compile a list of officers who had been convicted of an on-duty killing going all the way back to 1965 and i believe that i know for a fact we came up with less than a hundred you know, I want to say that on one list, we found 38, and that was an exhaustive list. On another list, we found somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 45. That was an what exhaustive was list. Time, what was the time period for that um, number? One of them was from 1965 to uh, 2021. And so 
and and then bear in mind that certainly in recent years, the number of police shootings has hovered at around a thousand per year. So when we're talking about 30 to we'll call it 50, if I'm being generous, convictions for on-duty killings of police officers. Um, and in total of all the years, you know, that it's, it were 30 to 50, somewhere in there, if I'm guessing. Um, but last year there was, I think 1100 year before that 980, you know, and so forth and so forth, uh, so on going all the way back, um, you begin to see very easily that that number easily gets into the five digits, maybe even into six digits of police killing. And we're talking about less than 100 people convicted. This means that every single human being that police execute is that's done justifiably. And if that is the case, then we really need to rethink what policing means and what public safety means and what criminal justice means because that margin of error is entirely unacceptable. I'm saying that because as we know, the majority or, or rather uh, a significant amount uh, more than what is uh, a reflection of the, the population. Um, so what is it? What am I trying to say? Comper Comparatively speaking, it disproportionately affects black people. So a lot of those bodies are black and brown bodies. Um, people just getting executed by the police. Now, this is not a new story for us around here, but this might be something that's new for you. Now, I digress. Um, following up with this story, I wish that there was a little bit more to it than just a slap on the wrist and her admitting that it was a hate crime. Granted, is documented publicly. We, I, I mentioned that as sort of the silver lining with the Kim Potter case. You know, it's documented that she was wrong. Um, but in terms of actual punishment or justice or whatever, it feels very hollow. Go ahead, Q. I mean, you, before I could even interject, you said it. It feels completely hollow, mm. especially because there's this kicker there for her, right? If you can just behave for a little while, We'll even pretend like this thing, this thing that you're pleading guilty to didn't happen. Right. And we'll downgrade it to some misdemeanor that will never come up again, essentially. You know, um, it's not like we made a celebrity of her. Right? If she walked past us today, if she came in the studio and interviewed under a different name, like for some other topic that she was supporting our show, we'd interview the lady, have a whole show, probably give her a hug, you know, take her around the corner to the spot where I get my cucumber lemonades. And I uh, have no idea who she was. Right. So she kind of lived in the anonymity of that and have her record essentially sponged of it as well. It's, it just seems really, really unfair. Absolutely. Now, let's turn it up a bit more. We saw a video um, a couple years ago. Two Buffalo police officers pushed an elderly man down. He hit the, his head, hit the sidewalk and his, he started bleeding out of his ear. We saw this on video too, right? This is a crazy thing about these things. We see them happening. How can you say that it's not what it is when we see it? You know, because like people when they're wearing a badge, it's not what we saw. You didn't see that. 
I'll continue. I think it's called the Jedi mind trick, I think. I, 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 that must only work. Oh, you pushed that man down, sir. No, you didn't. Okay, maybe I didn't. <laughs> well, um, this story comes from the New York Times, and uh, we'll talk about it. Uh, so, uh, and the author here is Eduardo Medina. Uh, this came out April 11th, and uh, it's entitled The Officers Cleared of Wrongdoing. All right, two Buffalo police officers who shoved a 75-year-old man to the ground during a protest in 2020 have been cleared by an arbitrator who said the use of force was, quote, absolutely legitimate, end quote, because the man who was hospitalized with a head injury was, quote, not an innocent bystander, end quote. The 41-page ruling from the arbitrator Jeffrey Shellick, uh, or Selchik, sorry, was issued on Friday. It came nearly two years after a widely viewed video taken by WBFO, a local radio station, showed the two officers, Robert McCabe and Aaron Turgalski, shoving the man, Martin Gugino, who was attending a protest in June 2020 after the, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. The video, which fueled outrage during a summer of unrest over police violence, shows Mr. Gugino stagger backwards and land hard on the sidewalk with blood immediately leaking from behind his right ear. His lawyer, Melissa D. Weiserath said he was hospitalized for about a month and suffered a fractured skull, a brain injury, and hearing loss. Mr. Selchik based his findings on a three-day hearing in November. Mr. Gugino, he wrote, did not respond to a subpoena to appear at the hearing and, quote, in effect, refused to testify, end quote, on his own behalf. All right, here we go. Ready? No, I'm not ready because I'm, I'm reading <laughs> along with you. And there's so much stuff I want to call BS on already. Uh, hold on, let me get to like, it. I'm watching this get worse, sir. Well, listen, buckle up, because here we go. The officers had not violated the department's guidelines, Mr. Selchik wrote. And there was no evidence that they, quote, had any other viable options other than to move Gugino out of the way of their forward movement, end quote. Mr. Gugino, he added, had not complied with an order to, quote, move back and was making odd physical gestures within a foot, end quote, of the officers. So that effectually is how you're able to say you didn't see what you saw on video. Because, you know, a lot of us saw the video. And if you haven't, it's certainly something that you can find online. Um, you know, there is certainly a trigger warning if you're sensitive to violence against humans, violence against older people, um, or you just have a beating heart and a degree of empathy. Um, it's, it's tough to watch, but, you know, he, there was nothing aggressive. There was, you know what I mean? There was, the only thing aggressive in the video was the officers. It was the only thing. They're militarized, they're wearing uniforms, they have weapons, they have batons, they have shields and all dressed in black. And there's a, a line of them marching. And the man standing there with his phone and granted he's in front of them. And it looks like he's trying to either ask a question or, you know, uh, you know, whatever, whatever he's trying to do, but it, it's not aggressive at all. And then the guy just pushes him out of the way. He falls backwards and he hits his head and then blood comes out of his ear. It's so sad to watch. And then they're saying, no, that's, that's totally fine. It's his fault. And we see with our own eyes and they're able to determine that. All right. Go ahead, Q. What do you got? It's odd how they, I'm guessing how the journalist has to report about this because they say that his lawyer says he was hospitalized. 
like that's not extremely easy to prove. Mm-hmm. Like they're saying that like that's his lawyer's opinion mm-hmm. that his skull was fractured and he had a brain injury. Like I'm sure there's medical documents that prove these things to be true. So it, it's intentional that they say it like it's his lawyer's opinion that these things happen. And I thought it very uh, simultaneously maddening and hilarious that part of the justification was, and I quote, <laughs> and I'm laughing because I'm so angry, I would rather laugh than punch through my computer screen. He made odd physical gestures within a foot of the officers. And if you rewatch the video, you'll find yourself trying to figure out <laughs> what in this case is being classified as an odd physical gesture. I am a single, singular person being approached by an army of officers that are in essence about to assault me, but I'm the one being accused of doing something odd. Like I said, man, it's like the Jedi mind trick. Like, hey, you guys just shoved that man. No, we didn't. Maybe you didn't. You know, it's weird because there seems to be, especially on the, the right, the, the overly patriotic, you know, um, support the troops, um, you know, support our, our first line defenders, thin blue line flag sticker wearing people that, um, you know, it's like they don't realize that they're, they could be classified as bootlickers. Now, far be it for me to knock anyone who's supporting the police, supporting the troops, you know, anything like that. That's not my way. You know, everybody you know, does what they do. In fact, I'm supportive of police. Um, I just support the police in a very different way. I support them by charging them with doing better. Do it all the time. I think that we all can be better. Ramses can be better. I can be a better father. I can be a better friend. I can be a better brother, you know, and I charge everyone around me with the same, especially when I pay all this money in taxes. (laughs) I gotta, you know, it goes to the police force. So, you know, it's just interesting how folks don't realize well, you know, a lot, the police really do a lot more harm in black and brown communities than they do in other communities. And so maybe folks can justify that. Now, I do want to um, follow up with one more story before we move on. Um, this one came from Sean King. This is compliments of Q. He shared the video with me. Um, there was a video that we saw on Instagram of police officers opening the doors to their vehicles as they were interacting with a suspect or whatever the case is. And they were blasting Disney music very loudly. And the reason for that was so that the Disney music would trigger a copyright violation on social media, um, which would prevent the videos that people who were the onlookers and recording on their phones, making sure to keep the police honest, making sure that those videos would not go viral. This was the point. And they, they admitted it in the videos. It's interesting. Now, we did an episode you know, a while back where we talked about how police will move their vehicle in, in the line of sight of folks filming police encounters um, or will physically stand, put, place their bodies in the way of folks filming the interaction. And they'll say, um, you know, I need this space to conduct my investigation or, you know, whatever. Um, but we can see that they're physically doing that to prevent someone from getting a good angle of the engaging officer's interaction with a suspect, you know, and those things also feel very unfair and it feels like very sinister 
underhanded. You know, why blast Disney music in the middle of the night in a neighborhood when everyone's sleeping? They all came out and was like, yo, can you turn your music down? If you're not hiding anything, it's we are trying to keep everyone honest. It's never lost on us that the police are the ones with the guns. All of them have guns. We have cell phones. You win, right? But this posturing and this, you want to talk about odd movements, odd physical gestures, you know what I mean? Those are the sorts of things. I'm going to put my body in the line of the camera and so forth. So I just wanted to follow up with that one as well. So yeah, right there, a few follow-up stories for us um, just to bring everyone up to speed. Um, they don't even try to pretend. Right. But this is a good enough time for us to take a pause for the call. So stick around. We're coming back with more Civic Cipher right after this.